Welcome to the podcast of St. Basil the Great Catholic Church in Brecksville, Ohio, with homilies, talks, and interviews relevant to your Catholic faith. God bless you, and enjoy. Well, good evening, everyone. You survived the day, I take it. Wasn't it a beautiful day? It really was. Okay. Um, yesterday, we, we talked about loving God above all things and about prayer. Uh, I, mean, I think a couple of things to remember are that um, loving God isn't just praying, but that's one of those things that's going to put us into contact with God. And, and prayer by itself doesn't mean anything unless it leads to God. There, there's a story about a wealthy couple, and they were giving a, a cocktail party, and a very famous actor was there. And uh, they asked him to you know, recite something. So he recited, the Lord is my shepherd, there is nothing I shall want. And when he was finished, everybody clapped. It was just beautiful. Then he turned to the the old grandmother that was there and said, why don't you say the psalm? And when she finished, there was dead silence. He said, I know the psalm, she knows the shepherd. And that's what prayer is supposed to be for us, that eventually we know the shepherd. So today we want to we want to look a little bit at self-love, the love of self. God, God has said, or Jesus has said to us that we're going to love our neighbor, and the, the way we do it is as we love ourselves. So it'd be pretty bad if we have a, a, a bad uh, self-love, because then that's going to reflect how we treat our neighbor. So let me, let me just start with a, a few what I would say are characteristics of good self-love. Eating healthily, exercising, quiet prayer time, maybe spending some time in reading or learning, giving ourselves space to decompress, spending time relaxing, having fun, ensuring we get enough sleep, They're basic. This is what healthy people should do. And that doesn't just help us, but it will eventually help our neighbor as we become whole and healthy. So what's the opposite? A poor diet, being lazy, escaping into junk TV, addictions, compulsive behavior, not sleeping enough, being anxious and stressed all the time. In those ways, we're not ascribing to ourselves any value and probably affecting others around us. So, so loving ourselves is not about making life about me. It's not about the world revolving about me. That's not self-love. That's self-centeredness. That's a selfish type of love. So, but some of, some of the ways that we act or we don't act, come from poor habits that we have. And, and habits uh, are formed by the repetition of actions. So if you want to have uh, the virtue of patience, then it's through a series of being patient, through acts of patience, eventually you become a patient person. And on the flip side, if you're a, a liar It's not telling one lie, but it's the repetition of those lies that forms a habit of lying, and then you become a liar. But these examples I've given of what means self-love and what isn't self-love, Christians, Catholics, somebody without religion, those, those would all apply to them. But there's a spiritual dimension that we're going to talk about. Uh, there's, a, there's a theological saying that says, grace builds on nature. So the, the more healthy we are, the better we are as a human person, the more grace is able to develop within us. And you can see that. If you're, if you're really tired and, and stressed, you don't respond well to others. Grace isn't able to work very well through you when you're stressed and, and at your wit's ends. Um, 
This is not about being perfect. It doesn't mean that we're striving to be the perfect person. Well, we are, but that's not the key to this. The only perfect persons are, of course, Jesus and Mary. And there's like a saying, if you're looking for a perfect church to go to, where everybody in that church is perfect, and you join that church, it won't be perfect anymore. That's the way it goes. Um, So we're not called to be perfect, but we're called to wholeness, to holiness, and those two are connected. Now here's a poem that maybe describes where you're at today. Within my earthly temple, there's a crowd. There's one of me that's humble and one of me that's proud. There's one that's brokenhearted for his sins, and one that's unrepentant sits and grins. There's one that loves his neighbor as himself, and one that cares for naught but fame and self. From such perplexing care I would be free if I could once determine which is me. And in a sense, that's what we're trying to to do. We're trying to figure out today, who who am I? What am I? What can I do to be a better person myself, to come to that that wholeness? And I want to use, I was saying, this is not just a a natural phenomenon. For us, it's a spiritual phenomenon. And so I want to use several scripture passages to kind of set the tone, tone for tonight. And the first one comes from the book of Genesis. Such is the story of the heavens and the earth at their creation. At that time, the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, while as yet there was no field shrub on earth, and no grass of the field had sprouted, but a stream was welling up on the earth. The Lord God formed man out of the clay of the ground, blew into his nostrils the breath of life, and so man became a living being. Second reading from the, is from uh, the prophet Jeremiah. Rise up, be, to the, be off to the potter's house. There I will give you my message. I went down to the potter's house, and there he was, working at the wheel. Whenever the object of clay which he was making turned out badly in his hands, he tried again making clay another object of whatever sort he pleased. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Can I not do to you, house of Israel, as the potter has done, says the Lord? Indeed, like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in in my hand, house of Israel. And the final scripture one, St. Paul to the uh, Corinthians. This treasure we possess in earthen vessels to make it clear that surpassing power comes from God, not from us. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? And you are not your own, for you have been purchased at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. So we hold that we're clay. That's what Genesis says. Uh, and, and God has breathed into us the breath of life. Uh, it's, it's ruach, it's, it's R-U apostrophe A-H in Hebrew. And it's God's life breath. Uh, for the Hebrews, the ancient Hebrews, uh, anything that had life, the, the birds, the field, the, uh, all of that, we have the same life breath from God. And when God withdraws his life breath, we die. Uh, that's, that was their, their concept. Uh, but we have then within us this treasure, this presence of God. God made us, fashioned us, uh, molded us. And the treasure that St. Paul speaks of is the God of mercy who dwells within creation. His life breath is everywhere and also dwells deep within us. And so that, that says two things about God. God is, first of all, transcendent and at the same time imminent. 
A God is transcendent. A God is God. We are not God. God lives in unapproachable light. God is the one who created everything in his divine image. God is the potter who fashions the vessel. God is the creator. We are the creatures, the work of God's hands. But God is also imminent. God is the life breath within us. God is closer to us than we are to ourselves. And especially for us who have been baptized, God's divine life flows through us. We are temples of God's spirit. The psalmist who wrote Psalm 139 understood this well. He said, O Lord, you have probed me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I stand. You understand my thoughts from afar. My journey and my rest you scrutinize. You are familiar with my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know the whole of it. Where can I go from your spirit? Truly, you have formed my inmost being. I give you thanks that I am fearfully, wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. Your eyes have seen my actions. In your book, they're all written. My days were limited before one of them existed. So what what do we know about this vessel of clay that we are, that God made? Well, we know that this vessel has many, really has many dimensions and very many levels. Uh, we, we have uh, intellect to think. We have a will to love. We have emotions. Uh, we have uh, a physical side to us. We have a spiritual side to us. I, I would say that we, we have a, a religious side to us. And when I think of a religious side to us, it's, it's the prayers that we have, who we are as Catholics. We, we, work, we pray our religion. But our spiritual side is something that permeates all those other levels, or it's supposed to permeate uh, all of those other levels of who we are. And so the, the vessel that we are is... is uh, interconnected in many relationships. Uh, The vessel that you are also encounters the vessel that family members are. An employer might be, an employee, friends, neighbors, church community, uh, school communities, different organizations that we belong to. And in all of those places, we are individual and unique made by God, fashioned by God, with God dwelling within us. And if you look at, at, at uh, vessels and cups, some of them are ceramic, some are white, some are decorated, some have insignias on them, some are from special occasions, some are heirlooms, and some are just plain mugs. You know, that's who we are. Well, well somewhere in there we, we each fit. Uh, they come in many different shapes and sizes, just like we come with different personalities. Uh, we, used to, we have at, at uh, the chancery, we always had a white elephant uh, uh, exchange before Christmas, and they were always really, really goofy gifts. Uh, <laughs> one year I gave a, an autographed picture of myself. <laughs> uh, but one year I had all these crazy mugs. In every place I go, a 50th, a 50th anniversary of this parish, this organization, I had all these mugs. So I, I gave a set of 12 mismatched coffee cups. I got rid of all of them. Um, but like cups, our, our physical and our psychological and our spiritual shape is different. You know, we, Jeremiah went down and the potter was fashioning the vessel. And if it didn't go the way he wanted it, he smashed it and he did it again. Um, even, even in reading the lives of the saints, you, you don't imitate or you can't really imitate the life of the saint because the saint is a vessel that is by itself unique and different, lived in a different time, had different graces, uh, responded to God in different, different talents, different weaknesses. 
But what we do learn from, from each of the saints, and they teach us some aspect of, of what it means to, uh, to, to live the life of faith. What, what does this vessel say to us about God? You know, you take something like St. Thomas Aquinas, and when I think of him, I think of, of study and learning. Uh, I, we, had to, we had to read the Summa Theologica, which is about six volumes, all in Latin. Uh, that I don't know how that man ever wrote as much stuff as he did or have that kind of knowledge. Uh, Teresa of Lisieux, about prayer. You know, she was just caught up in prayer to God. Think of Francis and Claire. I think of, of poverty and simplicity. Uh, John of the Cross, uh, contemplation. Mother Teresa, compassion. John Bosco, concern for the youth. Jerome, a love for scripture. And so we, we do read the lives of the saints because they do, they do help us understand what our vessel ought to look like, but never exactly like any one of them. We, we are totally unique. And you can only hold that life breath, that image, in the way that you've been shaped. It's what God's given you to work with. It's the shape which the potter has chosen for you. And for us as Christians, uh, the, the, val- the vessel itself has value because God created it, but also has value because of what God bestowed upon it. We have a treasure not made of gold in earthen vessels, wealth untold. When I used to do spiritual direction with the seminarians, in one of the first meetings, I would, I would ask the directee to tell me something about themselves. Uh, it, would, it saves a lot of time. If I, if I meet with them uh, once a month or every other week, you have to go a, a long time before you really realize who they are. So uh, you know, say to them, you know, well, uh, tell me something about yourself. Um, are you an optimist or a pessimist? I've got another story. There's these twins. One's an optimist, one's a pessimist. Extreme, absolutely extreme. I mean, the parents are very concerned about their their two little kids. The pessimist is never happy, and the optimist is never sad. So they've got to figure out what to do. So they put the pessimist into this room. They put all the food that he loves, all of his best toys in there, and they put him in that room. And then they put the optimist in a room, and all they put in is horse manure. And so they go to the door, and the pessimist is crying and crying and crying. So they open up the door, and he's saying, oh, I'm going to get sick on the food. I know I'm going to get sick, and all these toys are going to break, and I won't have them anymore. So now they're a little concerned, so they go over to the other door, and they hear laughter, just giggling. And so they open the door up, and here's the kids throwing the horse. And there's got to be a horse in here someplace. There's got to be a horse in here someplace. Uh, you know, and, and, and that tells you something about the person. Um, a procrastinator or an A personality. Is this thing working again? Can you hear me? I think it feels like a... It, just, it did cut out, didn't it? Okay, I'm going to try. Oh, back on again. <laughs> I was going to try and talk loud, loudly. Um, am I a procrastinator or an A personality? Now, I am definitely an A personality from the word go. There's a story about the guy goes to the doctor, and my doctor probably says this to me. You've got to stop being such a, an A personality. You've just got to you know, slow down. He says, hey, doc, I'll be the best personality you've ever seen. <laughs> Are you an introvert or an extrovert? So think for a minute, how would you describe yourself to somebody that just met you or that you know? Even though you know the person probably sitting next to you, um, give them three adjectives you might use to describe yourself. Like I might say, well, intelligent, handsome, and humble. <laughs> uh, you know, so, what, I really do it, do it. What, think, you think, well, think for a second first. What are, what are three adjectives to describe yourself? 
You didn't tell somebody next to you, around you, behind you. Some of you are cheating, you're not doing it. <laughs> How long does it take to say three adjectives? Okay, now think for a minute how somebody uh, who knows you, maybe a spouse or that, and I ask them to describe you to me. Uh, <laughs> it might be a little different than the one that, that you just, you know, you just came up with. Um, you know, there's a, that, that commercial where the kids got the, the socks and, and he's the gym socks on, and he says, when he, when he, he smells this, but when his mother comes in, she smells this as the great big sock that's hanging, the smelly sock. Well, you know, that can happen to how, how do other people perceive me? It might be right, it might be wrong, but how do they perceive me? But then the, the, the bigger question is, how, how would God, or how does God perceive me? What, 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 what adjectives might God use to describe me? That's the important question. What, what's really, I think, kind of neat is no, no matter how you answer that question, God still loves you. Uh, because you're the vessel that holds the treasure. Uh, one, the psalm says, you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. God's love is an unconditional love. Uh, they, they talk about, in, in Greek, Greek is a little bit better at, um, we, we say, uh, I, we love all kinds of things. We, we love pizza, we love our dog, uh, we love our spouse. Uh, but obviously those are, are different kinds of love. And, and in Greek, they, they kind of specify them a little bit better. Um, eros, we get the word erotic from it, but eros means the, the passion of love. It, it's the spark that draws somebody to another person to want to marry them. Uh, the, the problem sometimes is, I think, especially with couples nowadays, is they think that is the kind of love we're talking about. And so when the spark doesn't seem to be there, well, I must have fallen out of love. I'm not in love with them anymore. It, no, it's what, what draws a person to it. And, and particularly married couples have to occasionally bring that spark about. You go on a date by, your, you know, by yourselves uh, to, to begin to, to get that feeling back again. But the feeling is not love, it's that level. And then the, the second level is philos, uh, Philadelphia, uh, the, the, the city of brotherly love. And, and that's the kind of, of love that uh, wishes well to somebody else. And, and I think sometimes, in, again, in, in, in married couples, you know, some days you don't love a person with, you know, of that, that, with philos. You know, you're, you're really upset with them. But agape is the high, that's the, that's the love we attribute to God, and that's the love that's supposed to be present to married couples. Agape is unconditional love. Probably the closest thing we come to it is parents for their children. Um, you might just be so angry at what they're, they're doing, what they're doing with their lives or what, what they've done, but you still love them. Now carry that to an infinite degree, and God, God, God has entered into covenant with us, and he says, I will not be unfaithful to my covenant. God never stops loving us. God may not like what we're doing, but he loves us. That's why, you know, when you read that weddings, they always do, love is patient, love is kind, love does not put on airs. I'm so sick of hearing that from uh, Corinthians, you know. And I don't think they really get it, uh, because the word in Greek is agape, uh, love is patient. Even, even when I, I, have a, I, I have a reason to be impatient with you because of what, what's going on, I still love you. you know? and, and, and that's why at the end of that, Paul can say, love never fails. It can't. If, if, it's, if it's unconditional love, it can't fail. 
Because I don't care what you do, I still love you. I suppose even our vows for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, sickness and in health, that probably is a good example of agape love. It doesn't matter what's going on with that. Um, so God keeps offering us welcome and love. His love is a bottomless cup, cup. Nothing you can do can earn his love. Nothing you can do can lose his love. So I'm going to suggest a few things that might help in loving ourselves in a good way. And hopefully some of it can be food for further reflection and prayer as you continue on through Lent. Uh, I, I think one of, the, uh, one of the things that we can do for ourselves in self-love is emptying ourselves. Uh, Paul said to the Philippians, your attitude must be Christ's attitude. Though he was in the form of God, he did not deem equality with God something to be grasped at. Rather, he emptied himself. Uh, there's a part of us that always wants to be full. You know, it, it, sometimes it's uncomfortable not to, not to have everything going the, exactly the way we want it, not to, to feel good all of the time. But, but a cup that's always full doesn't have room to receive. So in spiritual life and in life in general, there has to be a dying and a rising, uh, an accepting and a letting go, emptying of sin for sure, letting go of old hurts. There's, there's, there is a true story about some lady was moving to another town and she made it very, very clear to the moving people she wanted everything in her house packed up and sent over to there. So when she got to the new place, her garbage was there. She wanted everything and they... So we do that. You know, we, we, we move along, but we bring the garbage along with us and then wonder why. We need to let go of some of that stuff. Uh, so some of the emptying is self-imposed, simplifying our lives. Now, this is something I think we, we kind of do. It's kind of a Lenten thing to do, to empty yourself. Uh, you know, you might be so engrossed in, in playing computer games, and so you, you say, well, during Lent, I'm going to limit myself to three hours a day of playing computer games. You know, I'm emptying myself a little bit. Uh, I hope better than that. Uh, but I, I, knew, I had a, an old nun that I was spiritual director for, which was a delightful lady. And one Lent... She decided, now this is a, a, an older religious, she was still in habit at that time, so it's, you know, pretty strict. And she decided every day of Lent she was going to give something of hers away. She was going to empty herself. And she said near the end of Lent it got really, really hard. The first few days were very, very easy, you know, to give some of the junk she had away to somebody else. But after 40 days it was a little bit harder um, you know, even for us you know, to, to empty out our closets, you might say, well, that, that's just, you know, for me. Well, it's, yeah, it is, but that's a secondary effect if my first thing is, I have this stuff I don't need. I have these clothes I'm not going to wear. Somebody else could wear them. They're very, very good. And it's a sign of my self-emptying that I don't need this. I'm, I'm going to give it away. Sometimes the, the emptying is done to us. Uh, an illness can lead to an emptying. Um, aging can lead to an emptying. There's a lot of things now that I can't do that I did 20 years ago. I have to let go of some of that stuff. Um, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm a, I... <laughs> I like to do carpentry and I like to fix things and that. So I've got one of those, uh, I, I have a, one of those, I've fallen and I can't get up buttons. Uh, it's, it's next to my bed <laughs> where it's at. Uh, but I decided I'm going to use it whenever I do something stupid. Okay. So I, I, I was going to change, I was changing the, uh, the fixture on the outside of the garage and I thought, well, I'm going up on the ladder. I probably ought to put this thing on. So I did. I didn't put on the other little gadget that you can talk to the people with. I forgot to put that on. So 
I, all of a sudden, all hell broke loose. I went in the house and the phone is ringing and, I, and it was them, and this was Guardian, whatever the company is. Uh, are, you, are you okay? We've called your brother. The emergency squad's on its way. <laughs> I must have leaned up against the, uh, the thing when I did it. Uh, I said, no, I'm perfectly fine. Call them and tell them they don't have to come. <laughs> So I did. They didn't get there. Thank goodness. I would have really been embarrassed. Uh, so sometimes we do have to let go. Uh, sometimes retirement causes us to let go. We're used to being in charge, and now we're not, so we let go of, of that. Uh, and that's probably somewhat, that's probably part of the problem why sometimes when, when uh, there's a, uh, the woman's been the homemaker, and now her husband's going to be there all day long, and he still thinks he's at work telling people what to do. Uh, he needs to learn how to let go. Uh, the birth of a baby or a grandchild can cause us to let go. You don't have a life when you have them anymore. I mean, that's it. Your life is over. You have to let go. There's an appointed time for everything and a time for every affair under the heavens. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot the plant, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time for war, a time for peace. Chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes is a good Lenten meditation. How could I simplify my life? So there's emptying self. Um, I think prioritizing our life can help us be better people, more whole. Um, I, I, I took the course Seven Habits of Highly Effective People a long time ago by Stephen Covey. And one of, one of the things he does in the video is he has this, this glass bowl and it's filled with all these little pebbles. And he has like four or five bigger stones and he calls people up from from the group and tells asks them to put those stones into that jar and of course they're they're moving them aside and pushing them around and that and, and eventually they they kind of give up so he he takes the bowl he dumps all the pebbles out he puts the four stones back in there and then he puts some pebbles on top and and the idea was the things that you really, really need to do need to be priorities in your life. Uh, not, you can't do everything you want to do. And if you say, I don't have time for prayer, was that a priority in your life? Well, if it is, then you've got to find a way to put that into the jar. Is your family a priority in your life? Well, how much time do you spend with them? How do you treat them? How do you uh, encourage them? And if that's not happening, you've got to put that into there. So you know, what, are, what are the things that are really, truly important uh, in your life? I think, did I bring my, I did. That's why I gave you, I gave you this, uh, that graph that's on your yellow page. This was also from Stephen Covey. I, co I borrowed this from him because I, I, I thought, I thought this, is, this is really, really good for talking about priorities. Um, so you have things that are urgent and important. Urgent and important. So it, it might be very important for you, you, you've been out shopping all day or visiting somebody all day and you just got home and it's now urgent and important that dinner get done. Um, some crisis arises. It's urgent. It's important. You've got to do it right now. A deadline. <laughs> when I taught at the seminary, uh, I, I always said, uh, if I'd given you a, an assignment uh, it's due at the beginning of the class on which it's, uh, it's due. And so I had one of the, they had a term paper, and the one seminarian came in, uh, and his nose was all bandaged up. Uh, and I says, what happened, Bob? 
He said, I didn't have my paper done, and I was working on it, and I had to go to the bathroom, and I ran into the door. He broke his nose. Um, so that was something that was urgent and important that he wanted, should have, uh, have, that he had to do. But then you have not urgent and important. Uh, if he, it was, getting that paper done was important. If he had done it when it was not urgent, it wouldn't have moved into that other category. So probably one of the most important parts of this, this graph are important and not urgent. What, what are some of the things that I could do uh, in preparation for something? Instead of leaving it go to the last minute, what are some things that could ease some of the tension and pressure in my life if I just prepared for them? Uh, looked, looked ahead a little bit. What, what are some things I could have prevented from happening? It wouldn't even move into urgent and important because I prevented it from even happening. Planning ahead, relationship building, true recreation. Uh, it's, it's not urgent that you recreate yourself, but, but don't wait until you're, you're, uh, you're at your wit's end and you're, you're, you're afraid and you can't do another thing you know, or even have a nervous breakdown, when if you had done some real decompressing earlier, it'd be better. And then you have things that are urgent but not important. Uh, some phone calls, somebody calls up, it's really not important. Uh, but but it, it is urgent for them, and you sit there and you listen to what they have to say. Not urgent, not important, that's the one you have to watch for. Uh, Trivia things. It's, it's the little pebbles in that glass. You don't need all those little pebbles in that glass. You could simplify your life by taking out some of those little pebbles that are really not urgent or important. Some of the busy work, time wasters, excessive TV. Now, notice that not included in that is relaxing, because relaxing is, not, is important might not be urgent, but it's, it, it's not unimportant. Um, in, in Covey's thing, he gives you one of these graphs, that, and you have to first of all put in, what percentage in that day do you think you did in, in each of those categories? And that could be a good thing tomorrow, or even, to, even tonight or tomorrow at the end of the day. How, how, many, how many of the things, how much of, of the time I spent today was urgent and important, and how much of it was not important and not urgent, and what might be some of the things that would fit in there. I just think it's a, it's a, real, good, um, a real good way to do it. I, I, I think I, the, the vision I always have in, in this one is um, uh, Lucy, when she was doing the, uh, the, 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 uh, the uh, uh, candy thing, you know, she, in the beginning it's important, but then it becomes urgent and more urgent and more urgent. She's eating them and everything else. <laughs> so we're trying to increase things in category two, lessen them in category four. Solitude. Um, a lot has to do with being introvert, extrovert, I suppose. But no matter what, if, if in our world there's so many distractions, there's, there's such a cacophony of, of voices and things going on. There, there are people who have to have their TV on all day long, even if they're not watching. It's just always, they have to have the noise that's there. They can't sit in the car without turning the radio on. Um, we need some solitude. Uh, it, it, it's beneficial in spiritual life, just, just to be quiet a little bit. And then the vessels that we are need boundaries. Um, cups have sides, a bottom. It holds things together. There's an opening to give and to receive and to give. And so we need boundaries, boundaries around our time, around our, our efforts. So how do, you, how do you do this when you're tired and fragmented? Hopefully that takes you back to solitude or to, to finding what it is for you that is regenerative. As Jesus' busy days of healing and teaching unfold, he again and again went apart. 
When Jesus received the news of John's beheading, he withdrew by boat to a lonely place where he could be by himself. After sending the crowds away, he went up on the hills by himself to pray. Six days later, Jesus took Peter, James, and his brother John and led them up a high mountain where they could be alone. The apostles rejoined Jesus and told him all they had done and taught. Then he said to them, you must come away to some lonely place all by yourself and rest for a while. So if we're too busy to pray, we are too busy. We need to slow down, quiet the rush in our lives. It's very difficult, but open ourselves up to something a little bit deeper. We minister to others so much sometimes that we don't take care of ourselves. I, I can remember this was very early in my seminary experience. We had a retreat master, and he said to us, he says, may it never be said of you of what was said of Jesus. And you stop and think, well, what did they say about Jesus that I wouldn't want them to say about me? He saved others himself he could not save. Uh, I think it's Charles, St. Charles Borromeo has a whole thing. Of, uh, he's, he's addressing the clergy uh, in uh, his city. This is in the 1500s. And he's, he's talking to them about, you have to take care of, of the, you know, the ministry you have, but don't neglect your own. Your own. And I think that's true for us. And, and those of you who are involved in ministries have to be very careful. There's, there's a lot of... of positive feedback and, and reward from doing things for others. But sometimes we can, we can get ourselves uh, become dry. And so one, one of the questions would be, what, what, do, what can I do or what do I do when I, I, I'm, I've, I've had it? I need to regroup. There was a book called When the Well Runs Dry by Green. Uh, what do you do when, when you just are empty? Well, what is it that, that brings you back to life? Um, everybody's going to be different on this one, but, but what, re, what really is energizing to you? I remember some, some of the times when I, I had to convince a priest that he needed to change assignments. Uh, and and I, I frequently asked them to do it because I thought they were just getting tired. And you go into a new parish and all, uh, there's a whole new life, a whole new excitement that they didn't have before. And I think sometimes we have to find out what those things for us individually are that bring us new life. For me, it's retirement. <laughs> oh boy, did it bring new life. It's great. <laughs> uh, God's calling us to wholeness and holiness calling us to be healthy, well-rounded, especially in ourself and in our relationships. There are some things you cannot change. Your personality, your life experiences, your past, some of the consequences of things you've chosen. But there are things that you can change. You can change mediocrity or laziness. You can stop saying, we've always done it that way, or saying, it's just the way I am. You can change some of your habits. You can put acts into your life that lead to good habits. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, the wisdom to know the difference. Living one day at a time, accepting hardships as a way to peace, taking as he did the sinful world as it is and not as I want it, trusting that he will make all things right if I surrender to his will, that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with him forever in the next. There are things you cannot change, things you can but the grace to know the difference. So, do I love myself? 
If I did, what would I stop doing? Do I really love myself? What would I start doing? What is self-destructive in my life? What is enriching in my life? In, in Stephen Covey's uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, his third habit is put first things first. He says, effectiveness requires balancing important relationship roles and activities. The key is not to prioritize your schedule, but to schedule your priorities. So put first things first. Balance your life out. There are pencils at the end of the pew. We're going to have a test. No, we're not going to have a test, but pass the pencils out anyway. And we're going to take, well, it's a quarter after eight. We're going to take five minutes to work on this, and then after that we'll just, we'll, we'll talk to each other. All right. Um, this is to kind of help us, you, 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 some of the stuff you may need to take home with you and, and work on a little bit later. But, but what, what are, are four or five things you would like to put into your life? Uh, be more understanding of my spouse, more patient with the kids, more time in prayer, more balance in my life, a particular virtue. What would I maybe like to eliminate from my life? So that first paragraph... List four or five things. We're not going to share this with anybody, so stop looking over your shoulder. Okay, in the next paragraph, uh, when, when I, uh, I, I have my, my, got my master's in education, and one of the things we were told when you're doing lesson plans and all that, uh, you, you have to have behavioral objectives uh, that you want to achieve. And so you, you couldn't say, uh, I want my students to read better. Uh, you, it had to be something that was measurable and concrete. Uh, I want them to read a half hour every day. Well, you can judge whether you could read a half hour every day. You can't judge if you can read better. So if you said, I, I want to be more understanding of my spouse, what's one activity that is a behavioral objective? So usually it's kind of small. What could I do? I, I, I'm going to uh, make sure every day I compliment at least one thing that my spouse does. That would be something you could measure. You want to put more prayer into your life? Uh, it could be, I'm going to spend 10 minutes a day reading the scriptures of the day. So be one behavioral objective for any one of those that you put in the first one. What obstacle will you face? Oh, I'm finding time to do this. Trying to think of something I could compliment him on. <laughs> uh, what's an obstacle to achieving that behavioral objective? What solution do you have to that obstacle? I'm going to get up 15 minutes earlier to pray. I'm going to pray at this particular time. And finally, what resolution can you make? I'm going to. You can't say, I would like to. I'm going to. If you say, I should or I would like to, you'll never do it. I'm going to. And now if you'll pass those papers in, I'll collect them. No. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm just kidding. I'm not doing that. Okay, I know that some of you haven't finished. That's your homework. It's due tomorrow at the beginning of class. <laughs> um, I wanted to make sure we had a few more minutes than we had last night. Uh, anybody have any, any comments or any suggestions about loving yourself or anything that I said or that you would want to clarify or anything? Like that, that. Okay, the, the question was on distractions. Uh, could some of the distractions just be the devil putting something into our minds? Absolutely. Absolutely, I believe that. Uh, absolutely. And, and, but the thing to be careful of is uh, not to concentrate on the fact the devil's put them there, because if you do, 
then he's achieved his purpose. You are totally distracted. The hardest part to do with that is is even just to let it say, okay, I, I get out of there, I don't need this. And that can even happen when, when you know somebody has some sexual uh, fantasies or something where they're praying. You just you just have to say, you know, okay, oh my goodness, get out of here, I don't need this, and just focus back again. Well, absolutely. But it can also come from what you were doing before. You know, if if you're looking at pornography regularly, uh, that's the devil at work there, and he's using that over in this place too. Uh, so you know, it it can be doesn't have to be the immediacy of it. It can also be whatever I've been before that can cause. But d- distractions are there. I mean, they're just there. Uh, and and I think in our world, because everything is so, uh, every everything is thirty second, fifty second. That it's really really hard to concentrate. That that's not a gift that comes easily. Trust me. <laughs> Maybe when I'm seventy eight, it will. <laughs> right now, it doesn't. Okay, the question is, on mystery of faith, why, why after, after every uh, consecration do we say the mystery of faith when we know it's, that it's Jesus present there? The community is verbalizing that, it, that that's what it is. We, obviously, you have to believe that immediately because when you say, I profess this faith, then you're, you're joining the, the believing community in professing it. It, it's not a bad thing because, it, it, again, with distraction, it's easy to forget what this really, truly is that we've done. And so hopefully sometimes the mystery of faith can shake us up enough to say, oh, my goodness, this is the passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus himself that I've just participated in and to which I have been invited. Uh, and that can then help us when it's time for communion, too, to, to, to realize what we are truly receiving. Uh, so the repetition of it isn't all that bad. Good question, though. Okay, you've been a very good class. I'm going to let you out five minutes early. <laughs> all right, you're dismissed. Let's pray. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Okay, safe travels home. Rest peacefully. Hopefully I'll see you tomorrow. We'll do love of neighbor. Oh, thank you. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this audio from our parish. You can find other homilies, talks, and interviews at our website, basilthegreat.org, or by subscribing to this podcast in your favorite app. Just search for St. Basil Catholic Church, Brexville. St. Basil the Great. Pray for us.